Welcome back to Give Me Some Truth. This is Season 3, Episode 2. If you have not yet listened to this season's intro episode, do that first. In this episode, we'll begin going through Yoko Ono's 4th of June 1968 audio diary with my special guests, Chip Mattinger, Aaron Torkelson-Weber, and Robert Rodriguez. If you would like to follow along with a revised and improved transcript, look for the download link in the episode description. Here we go. When the recording starts, Yoko is in the studio control room. The session this day took place in Studio 3 at EMI. Unlike the more frequently used Studio 2, where one must climb a staircase to get from the studio floor to the control room, the Studio 3 control room is on the same level as the studio. That meant that Yoko could look through the window of the control room and see the Beatles out in the studio. In the control room with Yoko was George Martin in the producer's chair, Peter Bowne sitting behind the mixing desk as the main sound engineer, and Phil McDonald operating the tape machine. John, however, seems to be out in the studio because the tape opens with Yoko saying, John, I miss you already again. I miss you very much. Revolution Take 20 plays in the background over the control room monitors. It is clear from the start that Yoko intends John to hear her diary recordings because she speaks directly to him. As the tape progresses, however, she's not consistent. Sometimes she is clearly addressing John, other times she talks about him in the third person. Today is Tuesday, and first we went to the office, and then now we're at the recording studio. We went to the office and then we went to see a film, sort of a lousy animation film, but then we saw the Tiny Tim, little um, plug on Tiny Tim, and Johnny Carson shorts, and that was very good. It is unknown what animated film they saw, but London's Daily Telegraph from this day lists a screening of Disney's 1949 short film adaptation of Kenneth Graham's The Wind in the Willows, at the Studio 2 News Theatre in Oxford Circus, as an intriguing possibility. This cinema had recently been bought by 20th Century Fox and exclusively played cartoons and shorts. In early 1965, John listed Graham's book as one of the most influential books from his childhood. Along with the film, Tiny Tim's 4th of April appearance on The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson was also screened, likely to coincide with the release of his recent single, tiptoe through the tulips with me. There's a little review on John and my um, 
show at the Aslam in views on the observer briefing or something, Sunday observer. And also Anthony Fawcett called and said that um, we have the need to give a statement for this um, national uh, sculpture show or something that John and I'm going to be in. The week before, John and Yoko attended the opening of an exhibition of their artwork at the Arts Laboratory on Drury Lane. The exhibition, which ran from the 28th of May to the 9th of June, was originally intended to be Yoko's solo water show, but it was turned into a collaboration and retitled John Lennon and Yoko Ono, Four Thoughts. John's main contribution was a piece called Build Around It. If, if you want to call it that, it was basically a broken drawer that they put on the floor and people would pile stuff on it, and, and that was their exhibit. Yoko contributed the other three thoughts, including her mend piece, a broken cup with glue, thread, and a thimble, and the instruction to mend it. The Observer newspaper published a pithy review on the 2nd of June in their briefing section, edited by Edward Mace, on page 22. In a show otherwise given over to the bland oriental offerings of Yoko Ono, a Japanese lady who made the famous Malty Bottoms film, Lenin's produced a long, low white plinth with two slats of wood angled upon it, encrusted with white broken plastic beakers and two porcelain doorknobs. Called Build-Around, spectator participation is invited, an offer rapidly being taken up. Empty Coke bottles and cups appear like magic. The work is accompanied by a handout in the form of a questionnaire, answers already filled up by Lenin. What do you appreciate most in your friends? Admiration. What is your dream of happiness? Black knickers. It was at the Arts Lab opening that John first met Anthony Fawcett, who was then an art critic and who would become John and Yoko's personal assistant in short order. Yoko had already met him on a few occasions, and he had once reviewed some of her work. Following the opening, John and Yoko invited Fawcett to dinner at a nearby Tandoori restaurant to coax him into using one of their works in the National Sculpture Exhibition he was co-organizing with Fabio Baraclough at Coventry Cathedral. Their eventual participation and planted acorns became rather controversial because of their extramarital relationship offending church doctrine and Beatles fans digging up their sculpture. Here's something you might not have noticed if we're talking about the, the exhibition is, you know, they've got the round chair that they were sitting on. The uh, white iron The big iron. Bench. Right. So if you go and watch the little bit of video from Kenwood where they're outside singing, everybody had a hard ear. Take a look at what they're sitting on. Oh. And they'd gone back to Coventry and got it back because the people at Coventry were being so nasty about where they placed them that they sent the trailer back down there to pick it up, and, and there it sat at Kenwood. Yoko also mentioned that someone named Pat told her about the Observer Review. I don't know who she is referring to, but I have a few possible candidates. First, there were three people who appeared in the credits for Yoko's film number four, Bottoms. Patricia Phillips... Pat Rudder, and Patrice Wally. I don't know if these were random volunteers or friends of Yoko. Another possibility is Pat Slattery, who is the personal assistant of Indica Bookshop's Barry Miles, a friend of the Beatles. Both Pat and Barry would get involved with Apple the following year with the short-lived launch of the Zapple label. 
Another possibility is Patricia Holland, a filmmaker who was shown at the Arts Lab and who made a 1965 film about Salvador Dali in New York. Finally, there was a woman in London named Pat Francis, who moved in the same circles as the Beatles. She was the wife of painter and filmmaker Paul Francis, who was an associate of Barry Miles, had met Yoko, and worked at the Arts Lab. By this point, Pat had left her husband Paul for their neighbor, Peter Arthie, and moved to Hampstead with their three children, but she may have still been in that scene. Next, Yoko discusses the album she and John recorded the month before at Kenwood. At this stage it was untitled, but she already referred to it as unfinished music, and they had plans to shoot a naked album cover. In 1980, John told David Sheff of Playboy that, Even before we made this record, I envisioned producing an album of hers, and I could see this album cover of her being naked, because her work was so pure. I couldn't think of any other way of presenting her. It wasn't a sensational idea or anything. Chip, Scott Riley, and I discussed the recording of the album that would become Two Virgins in great detail in the first season. If you've not heard that episode, make sure to listen to it when you finish this one. It's often forgotten that, as John and Yoko's personal relationship began, John also considered her work as his contribution to the Beatles' new Apple Corporation. Paul would champion Mary Hopkin, George would produce Jackie Lomax's first single and album, and John brought in Yoko. But at this early stage, John was not sure he would be able to attach his name to the album and suggested a possible pseudonym. Yoko did not like this idea and wanted to use the powerful recognition of their names to get the work heard. Also, John told me that uh, um, this uh, record album or something that we're going to make probably has to um, either be under my name only or um, like Doris and uh, Peter or something like that, you know, changing name and But I, I don't like um, either idea. It's just terrible, I think, if that happens. I'd rather um, just make private record that limited edition record that you just give out to friends, maybe 50 of them or something like that, and keep quiet publicly than do that, because it's a kind of sentiment thing. But also, if it's done publicly, the message is so beautiful that um, actually it's not a kind of thing that should be kept privately, because the message is going to be so beautiful that the unfinished bit and all that that it's going to sort of light up the world, especially with two of us naked, um, taken with a fish shy uh, camera and all that. Just that message is beautiful. But it's such a drag and um, well, the fact that I don't like the idea of Doris and Peter kind of thing because simply the names are not nice as Yoko Uno or John Lennon. Not the name value, but the names. Well, it's name value too. I mean, like Yoko Uno or John and means like just rebels or something. Some, there's a, a name, there's a dream to the name and, and that has to come across too. So that, I don't know, it's such a drag, but whenever I say something like that, 
I have to sort of still worry that... Hell, I don't have to worry because I'm sure John understands me by now. But, like, um... If his name means something that I want to use it or something. But if anything, that's not what it is at all. If anything, because that would be detrimental to me. All the girls are going to be, I don't know. I just can't uh, imagine what it's going to be like, but it's going to be hell for sure, for some reason or other. Yoko correctly anticipated the backlash from Beatle fans to her and John's naked cover and their relationship in general. It's like they haven't quite gotten a handle how they're going to release this thing and make it public or if they're going to make it generally public. I thought that was pretty interesting. I think my impression was that she was frustrated in that she had a, an artistic as vision of the message that she wanted to send and it seemed like the business, legal elements of really working with the Beatle were obstructing what she wanted to put out there because she has that fascinating comment about the value of John's name but also how it's just frustrating for her that she cannot she's constrained in a way from what she's trying to put out as a product and that, then she gets to the point where she says I'd almost rather give it out to 50 friends than put it out in a way it seems essentially to compromise the artistry that she wants to put out. And a lot of that frustration they would have brought on themselves by trying to be the first nude album cover with full frontal. Uh, I, I think, you know, that's where all of the, the, uh, the trouble came with them trying to get the package out. It's interesting, a little video clip just turned up the other day from a, uh, I think it's a California uh, TV station talking to the uh, the CEO of the tape manufacturing plant. And he's talking about how, how it's packaged so that you know it's John and Yoko, but you don't get to see the cover until you buy it. And it, it just amazes me that, that stuff like that just keeps surfacing. Yoko compared the potentially negative reaction from fans to how she had initially felt unwelcomed by some of the Arts Lab community. Like they would all hate me or something. Like in the Arts Lab scene. But the Arts Lab scene, it turns out that that was cleared, I understand. That um, they're starting to feel much better about us because of the pieces. Because the pieces are so nice and they started to understand that. Which is really nice, I think. Um, Betty Pippin and those people apologized to me actually on the phone. Because they started to understand. And that's very nice. I think that pieces speak for itself in a way. And also our attitude would speak for itself too. Like now they more or less sort of sense my attitude, which is like, actually, I couldn't care less, you know, that's, that's the feeling, and I couldn't care less, is the kind of feeling, this is, the unfinishedness and all that, that's the most important thing, that I care, because the message of that is almost close to, um, John's seed piece, in other words, seed piece is like the most unfinished piece. 
sort of waiting to grow. And my unfinished pieces are that. It's precisely that. But the nice thing about John's piece is that there's no melancholy about it. I mean, a seed is going to grow. But my unfinished piece rather has a melancholy about it too. Like, and that's maybe good. But these days, I think I like John's positiveness much more than that kind of melancholy. One of the Arts Lab members Yoko mentions is painter Biddy Pepin who was and still is the partner of David Curtis, who, at the time, managed the basement cinema at the Arts Lab. So she was kind of a de facto docent of the Arts Lab. At this point in the tape, the playback of Revolution we have been hearing in the background ends. But I'm very, very happy now. And just the, I'm just sort of scared. If I can get over this scary feeling, then everything's going to be all right. The reason why I'm so scared is because it seems almost unbelievable. I can't believe it. That's what it is. I just can't believe it. And yet, I can't go back. There's no way of turning back. Phil McDonald rewinds the tape. After a month with John, Yoko admits her fear that it all might suddenly end and she would not be able to return to her old life with her husband, Tony Cox. Well, those are the things that sort of make me feel so scared. Um, every day I think, oh, it can't be, I couldn't be like that. I mean, today it's going to be different. I'm not going to miss him at all, and I'm probably going to be turned off something. And it still goes on and on. Even when I'm with him, when I'm going with him, and I still listen with all my senses and all my nerves. And, and then they say, well, no, well, that's like a fairy story. And And I get paranoid. And yet, it's there. It's always there. Another playback of Revolution Begins. Yoko believes that her and John's connection is something really special and rare, but that he would dismiss that sentiment as a fairy tale. I suppose there are some people who really like that. Maybe once every century or something, that when a meeting is really, really good, probably that happens. Maybe once every two centuries or something. Or probably... People who have that kind of relationship never bother to tell it to others, and nobody really believes it, so that we don't know about it. But it's amazing that it does exist. And it's amazing that uh, the only time that I remember about my promiscuity is when I feel so insecure that I feel intentionally that I have to bring that out in me to sort of protect myself. But other than that, it never is there.
But I still feel that I have to hold back Because I'm not quite sure if you If you feel that way We Well that's like a kind of A strange Calculation maybe You know that's a kind of Calculation bit that The cleverness bit, you know, like holding back because you don't know that other person's feelings are. No. But one has to protect oneself in a way. Or, or should one? John comes back into the control room and interrupts Yoko's monologue. Yoko's recording cut off as she talked to John. His wife Cynthia was on holiday in Pizarro, Italy, with their son Julian, her mother Lillian Powell, her mother's sister Daisy, and Daisy's husband. After coming home to find John and Yoko together at Kenwood on the 5th of May, Cynthia tried to accompany John to New York on the 11th of May in an attempt to repair the damage to their relationship. John rebuffed her suggestion, and so she took off to Italy to get away from the situation, not wanting to be left alone at Kenwood. Unfortunately for Cynthia, her absence allowed John and Yoko's relationship to continue upon his return from New York. So now John tells me this, huh? if I had booked a telephone call to Italy, which I did, so I should have though I should have really. I interpret this to mean that Yoko felt like she should have tried to contact Cynthia in Italy, whether to try and have an open conversation about her and John or to try and scare Cynthia off is speculation. Tell her not to come home. Well, and later on when John has been in the hall or out of the room for a while, then she's speculating that he's in the hall calling Cynthia. At any rate, Yoko switched topics as she remembered that her friend Bill found a possible flat for her to rent near Hyde Park. This is likely William Waring, who we will discuss more when he comes up again later in the recording. On the transcript, it was written as Neil, as in Neil Aspinall, but on further listening, I believe she says Bill. Oh, and Bill said that he got a very nice place for me, and he's found a very nice place for me. It's overlooking the park, the Hyde Park. It's on the third floor. Um, both rooms are facing the park and the sky. Just the two rooms are rather small, but I don't mind. And a very tiny kitchenette, but just very nice. And the toilet and bath, which are very nice. And they're all painted white and uh, has a very pale gold fitted carpet. So that sounds really great. Tomorrow morning or something, maybe I should go and see it. And even if it's temporary, I can always uh, give it the the lease to somebody, I suppose, because it sounds like a very cheap place for that, the location for that. She also mentions how very grateful she is about that and how 
happy she is with that, with, with what Neil has found and how much she appreciates what he's doing, with which if you contrast it, for example, with Pete Chotten's account of looking for houses for Yoko and John later on, that's a pretty big contrast in evidently how Yoko reacted to Pete as opposed to how she's reacting to Neil. And, and the, the fa- Pete Shotton's account is actually very accurate because on that, that earlier portion of tape, they're out looking at houses and one of them, you know, is a castle. She refers to it as a castle uh, that she and John can live in. So Pete's account that, yeah, we went out looking for a house right away isn't too far off, but apparently that didn't come to pass because they were searching for the apartment to, to keep Yoko close. At this point, somebody who could be Mal Evans asks Yoko if she wants a beer. Or is it a bird? Do you want a bird is what it says in the, yep. but I'm pretty sure it's a beer. Nope, it's a beer. No? Bird. It's a bird. It's a bird. So if you listen to the very end of Revolution 1, you hear that real high chirping, uh, with the sawing bird. type of sound. It's one of those water bird whistles. You remember those from when you were a kid? Those little... Yeah, yeah, sure. It's just a little pipe that you'd stick in, and the harder you blow, the higher the pitch went. Oh. And and I'm, I'm fairly confident that Mal, or whoever was handing them out, was just, you know, do you want one? Do you want one? Do you want one? It's like, well, we better go include Yoko to see if she wants one. So... Uh, that's their next album. That's at least my read on... on do you want a bird or do you want a beer? I love how in 99 out of 100 circumstances, beer would make the most sense, but not in this one. <laughs> that, that reminds me of the Simpsons episode of Yoko character ordering a, what is it? A, a hat full of perfume with a plum floating in <laughs> when she goes to a bar. When, when I first read bird, I thought, are they having chicken or something? Are they like, you know, eating? But then when I listened to it today in headphones, I, I, I thought, oh, maybe it's beer with a Liverpudlian accent. And because she mentions, it, John, it looks like you've had a beer, but I know you haven't later. So then I, I don't know. Yeah, that's true. Boy, I wish I had your recall. <laughs> it's the first thing that goes. Oh, yeah. With that brief interruption, Yoko returns to discussing the Hyde Park flat and then switches topic again. Um, location all that, it's, um, uh, less than 20 pounds a week, meaning like 18 pounds or something, yes, it comes to, because it's 800 per annum, so, and central heating all that, it's just all very nice, but, um, And then I found out something else. Andy Warhol and Maria Meyer were shot today in New York. I'm so glad that I, I wasn't there because I would like to be there if I were in, in New York. Sure, Maria. 36-year-old Andy Warhol was one of the most popular American artists of his time. The day before, the 3rd of June at 4.30 p.m. in the afternoon, 28-year-old Valerie Solanas 
entered Warhol's new office at 33 Union Square West with two loaded guns and a vengeful grudge. Since 1965, Solanus had tried to get Warhol and his factory to turn a vulgar script she had written into a film called Up Your Ass. Although Warhol never agreed to do anything with the script, he gave her a small conciliatory cameo in his 1967 film I, a Man, and paid her $25. In her scene, she is sexually accosted by the male protagonist on a dark staircase, but rejects him and talks him down. During the same period, Solanus, a radical feminist writer and activist, founded an organization called the Society for Cutting Up Men, SCUM for short, and wrote its manifesto, which imagined a world eradicated of the male sex. In the previous weeks, Solanus had repeatedly but unsuccessfully demanded that Warhol return her script. Warhol had accidentally misplaced it, stopped taking her calls, and that pissed her off. She believed he was conspiring to steal her ideas. When she barged into his office on 3rd of June, she shot both Warhol and the 34-year-old editor of London's Art and Artists magazine, Mario Amaya. Amaya was in New York to try and persuade Warhol to do a retrospective exhibition in London. If you listened to my two-part Yoko Ono episode from last season with Madeleine Bucaro, you might remember that Mario Maya championed Yoko's work and was instrumental in sponsoring her to come to London from New York in 1966 for the Destruction in Art Symposium. Amaya told a New York Daily News reporter, quote, I was very lucky, end quote. A bullet entered his side above his left hip and narrowly missed his ribcage and spine. Warhol, on the other hand, was in critical condition, had five and a half hours of surgery, and was supposedly pronounced dead briefly before Dr. Massimo Bazzini was able to resuscitate him. I found that, that detail interesting. And uh, you know, Bobby Kennedy is 24 hours away from being shot in L.A. And um, I, I found that a little interesting because I'd always kind of wondered what was the Beatles' reaction to that, if they had any. Because we know, I think that was the week that George went out to Big Sur to shoot with Robbie, and uh, Paul was in L.A. later that month. Uh, Ivor Davis, we know, was on hand, uh, another Beatle guy. Um, but they don't mention it. And, and of course, uh, Kenny Everett then interviews them in the studio that week as well. I think that was um, a day or two after this recording originated. So that was that's one of the things I had wondered as a question, but... Um, I was reminded of that when she spoke of the Andy Warhol shooting at that time. Shocking news. And it reminded Yoko of her previous interactions with Amaya. Oh, and that's something that I should have done. It's so funny. Maya used to, because he's a fag, I guess. I don't know what it is, but anyway, he, he was very, I think he's but you're a fag. As much as he could as, as a fag, I think he's interested in me and all that stuff. So what he does is he would just sort of like touch me on the neck or like uh, my back or something like that. Or sort of, sort of scratch my arm or something like that when I'm talking to somebody. And then he said, this girl is amazing. She doesn't even notice it. You know, and made me feel like I'm a real frigid uh, woman, which was true because I really never noticed. But most of the time, I didn't even notice because I was sort of deep in some conversation or something like that. I used to wonder, my God, if I were sensitive at all, no matter what I was doing, if he would touch me or something, I should notice. That used to bother me. But that's how I was, you see. 
Abruptly, Yoko starts worrying again about the uncertainty of her situation with John. Settle down, because I don't know what's going to happen tonight. Cindy's coming back, maybe. Are we going back to Rapers, or are we going to stay here? All that, you see. The recording cuts off. Cynthia was not planning to return from Italy until the 9th of June. She sent a friendly telegram to Kenwood on the 6th of June to alert John and housekeeper Dorothy Jarlett of her arrival time. But it was while in Italy that John sent his Greek friend Alexis Mardis, a.k.a. Magic Alex, to find Cynthia and announce his intentions to divorce her. Cynthia became ill and stayed longer at the Hotel Cruiser, owned by the family of her future husband, Roberto Bassanini until she was well enough to travel back to London. I think she mentions that a couple times throughout the conversation. Is, is That's what she's worried about more than anything else, is that John's going to go back to Cynthia. Or Cindy, as she calls her the first time. Right, right. Yes, the insecurity about Cynthia that she expresses, I believe, again, we've talked about how not that many authors have covered this, and Doggett is one, and I think that's his main takeaway from this tape is how much insecurity Yoko reveals about the state of her relationship with John and her fear of being replaced again or being replaced by Cynthia. Your, your use of the word insecurity is perfect. I mean, and, and she was insecure while still being somewhat narcissistic. But it's interesting. Yoko uses the word paranoia. When she's talking about John, she uses the word insecurity, but when she talks about herself, she says, my paranoia. Well, it's very interesting. At the very end, I wrote down a list of the words Yoko uses to describe John throughout, or ways she perceives John. And they include rebel, positive, with a huge and brilliant aura, scared of a straight relationship, having a fuck-you-all ethos, sweaty-faced, very insecure handwriting, with now aggressive handwriting, insecure, possessive, paranoid, sexy, genius, nervous, and terribly weak. That's very true. There, there's another tape that, that is not in circulation, another open mic tape, where, uh, and I think it's been referred to probably in Goldman, where John is having her go through her past lovers. And, uh, and he's, she talks about one and then he's like, all right, next, who's next. So he, he was the, the, his insecurity, uh, was on an equal level, I think. And I don't know if they ever, you know, told each other of it, but the way John went about it was not something that hasn't really been exploited. Before the recording picks up again. We'll leave it there for this episode. So far, Yoko's commentary has given us insight into the early dynamic between her and John and her insecurities about Cynthia's imminent return. We also get to hear about current events such as the Arts Lab exhibition and the attempted murder of Andy Warhol. Thank you for joining us. The next episode will be out in a week, with new episodes every Wednesday for the rest of the season. 
For more content, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and follow on Facebook, Instagram, and the platform formerly known as Twitter. See you soon. Oh,